As I've discussed before, how a lot of commentators and people, they try to naturalize a lot of these events. We discussed uh, with Pastor Michael how a lot of the plagues that came upon the Egyptians, that a lot of people try to naturalize in one way or another. <coughs> another situation we have here is that people try to naturalize the parting of the Red Sea. And they say that in actual Hebrew, it actually means that it was, mis- it was misspelled as the Reed Sea. So that when the certain wind came along and separated the waters, that it was actually maybe three inches of water here. Whereas four or five times in this chapter, we're told that the Israelites crossed along dry land. It was dry. So no matter how much these commentators try to come off and say, no, it was just a natural event. You know, you had this east wind come along and blowing hard where it allowed some of the reeds to show up and shore up and that's where they all dried up. Okay, well, you know, if you still want to reject that miracle, let's have the miracle of how the entire Egyptian army drowned in three inches of water. Take either one. (laughs) So here we have, if you recall, the children of Israel... They left Egypt. They were witness to ten plagues. And they were also witnesses to how the Egyptians were not only attacked, but on how God's grace and mercy kept all the judgments away from the land of Goshen to where the children of Israel had lived. Now here we see that they're, tread, they're, they're, they're trekking through the desert here. And Pharaoh and his army are, are running after these guys. They're chasing after them. After they realized that the children of Israel had fled, he gave them permission to go three days into the desert to worship their God along with, all their, with, with their children and some of their cattle. But what he didn't anticipate was that these guys were never coming back because after the tenth plague, the Egyptians were more than willing to give them their belongings, a lot of the gold, a lot of the belongings. Just get out of Egypt, please. We need you out. We want you out. And so his first clue was, well, wait a minute. They took all their belongings. And Pharaoh's going, oh, wait a minute, why have I decided, what are, we, what are we thinking here? Our economy is gone. Who's going to be building our monuments for me? And so they went after them. And so, but where God had them going, where God had Moses taken them to was like a cul-de-sac. He had, take, he had told Moses to take them there in verse 2 to, uh, uh, to camp the children of Israel at their place called Pahahiroth between Migdal and the sea and another place in front of Baal if you can consider basically it's just only one way in and you have like a, uh, a wall a cliff on one side and another side over here you have mountains with, with caves in them and straight ahead over there is nothing but the sea and of course these people are camped there you know it must have been a huge place obviously to house approximately 3 million people well then in the distance they see Pharaoh and his army right away these people start freaking out and the first thing they do is they start charging against Moses what if it, were there not enough graves in Egypt for us to die why would you bring us out here of course as I've discussed last week Egypt was all about death their obsession was with death of course there's plenty of graves over there so rather than trusting God and what he had done they started murmuring against Moses And Moses was trying to exhort them. He told them, fear not, be still, stand still. The Lord will fight for you. Obviously, guys, you need to remember all that you've seen and heard. Why should you think that this would be any different? Perhaps it's because the walls were closed in. You didn't get it. 
in our lives, how the walls may start closing in and we start going, okay, now I can do this, I can handle this. But then when all we're done kicking, then we finally look up and say, Lord, a uh, little help, please. But as seasoned Christians, we can now, even every day, just look toward the Lord. How do we know when we're in the will of God? Well, what is our prayer life like? And I'm speaking for myself also here. You know, I'm speaking to myself, actually. What is our prayer life like? How do we know the will of God? Um, we are led into situations for these things to happen. And for what? To draw out our faith? Perhaps to show other people the God that we worship, who's in charge? Or perhaps just to show other people also, what kind of witness are you sharing or bearing they see you going through situations. How are you reacting to these things? And I've shared with you, I'm, I'm totally like this, is that there could be a boulder here in my way. It's like, okay, Lord, I know, no problems. I know you'll take care of it. But it's just that one little pebble in my shoe that gets me so irritated that I get in the flesh and as I start freaking out. My wife says, hey, you know, mellow out. <laughs> Grow up. <laughs> so here we see, we, te- we see Moses telling him, be still, keep silent, stand still. Be still. We sang that song today. Be still. God is in charge. Know that, I'm in, know that I am God. I will be exalted through your life. And we see here the angel of God in verse 19. We see the angel of God that went out before them during the day as a cloud, a pillar of cloud so that they can see him and as a column of fire at night. He would lead them and provide light for them in the nighttime. We see him moving here from leading them as a shepherd to their backside as a defender. On, one, on their side of the, of the, the Israelites was light. and the side of the Egyptians who were encamped behind them along the cliffs was darkness. They should have really, the Egyptians should have stopped while they were ahead because this is the second time they encountered a certain darkness. We're told that there was a darkness that could have been felt, if you recall one of the plagues there. It was also perhaps to shield the enemies away from the Israelites so they would no longer fear. Because I know if I still see my enemy away from me, I'd still have my, uh, my concerns. So we see the Lord here. And he tells Moses, okay, Moses, I basically gave you a clue of what I need you to do. I'm, you're going to be my shepherd. Talk about a shepherd for th- over three million people here. I want you to take him from one place to here and we're going to stop there. If you recall, in the, uh, when Abraham encountered the Lord and two of his servants there in Genesis, how the Lord told Abraham, shall, shall I hide from Abraham the thing that I will do? And he told him, he explained to him the situation about how he was going to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. He gave him a heads up. And what happened? Abraham interceded because his nephew Lot was living there, remember? In the same way here, Moses probably had a clue as to what was going on. Now, here we see that, you know, that after, as the Egyptians were chasing after them, they were probably thinking, ha, huh, victory is ours. But as, you know, we're going to set an ambush for them. The actuality was, the ambush was set for Pharaoh's army. And here we saw, at, as Moses lifted up his rod and left, stretched out his hand, that the, an east wind had come along all night and blew they're facing the east, and, and so you can imagine, you're in the, you have this cul-de-sac, 
you're facing the sea and this huge wind just starts blowing upon you. It's probably a hot wind, I don't know. We have these scholars trying to uh, naturalize again these phenomena. Have you ever tried to breathe in the Santa Ana winds? It's really difficult. You know, you try to catch your breath, but don't know if any of this might have occurred. However, a wind blew all night, and it says around verse 24, I'm sorry, let's go back to verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land, so the waters were divided. Moses here, he wrote the book of Exodus. He tells us, he wrote down, he, was, he bore witness. The land was dry. The land was dry. It was not marshy. It was not damp. It was not muddy. It was dry. And it was so much blue, so much wind had blown, waters were separated. Have you ever tried getting a straw and blowing upon a bowl of soup or, or a cup of water? You only get that one little... One little ripple, if you will. But imagine what the wind blew here. Verse 22 says, The sons of Israel went through the midst of the sea on the dry land. It's repeated here again. And the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. A wall. Depending on how deep it was, we're told through the Psalms that basically the deep opened up. We can guesstimate. We don't know exactly where the crossing had occurred because of floods flood seasons through the years you know it changes the topography there of that land or that upon the sea however the psalms tell us that the deep had opened up you can guesstimate say maybe what 300 feet 100 feet even if it was 50 feet or 10 feet that the waters were like a wall and that's awesome that's a miracle in itself God had provided these people a way out. I think it was in, in 1 Corinthians where it explains that, you know, we really shouldn't stress out because God's going to provide basically an escape key, a back door for us, for people who know programming. Verse 23 says, Then the Egyptians took up pursuit, and all Pharaoh's horses, his chariots, and his horsemen went in after them into the midst of the sea. We're here told that the army, everybody who was under Pharaoh, went in. We're also told a couple verses later, and in the next chapter, of all who went in. But there's one that the scriptures do not keep say a word about, and that's Pharaoh. Because if you recall, later on, uh, earlier, in, uh, in, in this chapter here, where it says, uh, I missed it here, Basically, God is saying, I'm going to exalt myself. The world is going to know what happened here, the known world. And if you recall what happened was that especially as the Israelites had traveled through the desert, they came upon a lot of towns and said, Hey, man, we heard about you guys. We're afraid of you guys because we heard of what your God has done. Now, if everybody, including Pharaoh, was wiped out, how would the rest of the nations have known? This is just my guess, is that since Pharaoh wasn't mentioned as being counted as one of the dead, perhaps he was the lone person. Even in his hardness of heart, God kept him back, allowed him to stay back, but bear witness that all his army had died underneath him. So he probably went back to Egypt alone and had to explain to everybody why he was the only one and what had happened. And of course, from there, news flew out as to what happened to the world's superpower at that time, which was Egypt. 
in verse 24 says that the morning watch, which is approximately anywhere from 4 to 6 a.m., or 3 a.m. to 6 a.m., the Lord looked down on the army of the Egyptians through the pillar of fire and cloud and brought the army of the Egyptians into confusion. At this time, after, the, after Israel had already crossed to the other side, they're saying they're, the cloud had moved away, and the Egyptians are saying, okay, now's our chance to go in after them. You can picture the move the Ten Commandments as all this is occurring. You know, the, the swirling flame or the cloud moves aside, and there go the Egyptian army right, at, right after the Israelites. And they're saying, yeah, we're going to get these guys now. We've got our chariots, we've got our horsemen, we've got our foot soldiers, everybody. Let's all go into the water's warm. Water's fine. Let's all go on in. However, it says that the army of the Egyptians was brought into confusion in more ways than one here. Verse 25 says, He caused their chariot wheels to swerve, and he made them drive with difficulty. So the Egyptians said, Let us flee from Israel, for the Lord is fighting for them against the Egyptians. Maybe their wheels started falling off. Maybe their wheels started getting stuck in dry land. Or they just started running into each other. Whatever it was, these guys had a clue that there's something supernatural was happening here. These people all bore witness in the land that they lived in of the judgments that were brought upon them as well as the gods that they served. Now they're starting to realize because he can't steer straight, uh, we better get out of here. This isn't right. You know, we, their God is fighting for them. And it's awesome to hear that because what did their gods do? Their gods couldn't protect them through these ten plagues. Now they're realizing, oh man, this is real now. Well, forget what we just, those ten, ten incidences, this one here is convincing me now. Well, guess what? It's too late. Verse 26 says, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch your hand over the sea, so that the waters may come back over the Egyptians, over their chariots and their horsemen. This is a a confirmation of what Moses told them. The Lord will fight for you, and from this point forward, you will never see your enemies or the Egyptians again, physically and probably even spiritually in the next life, because they're going to judgment. Verse 27 says, So Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the sea returned to its normal state at daybreak. While the Egyptians were fleeing right into it, Then the Lord overthrew the Egyptians in the midst of the sea. Right there. Water come down. It's, you know, you can almost consider where we're told, especially in the New Testament, that the Lord holds everything together. And then there's going to be a certain time we're just going to say, okay, you know what? Let it go. And then we're going to have some kind of cataclysmic event later, especially how the, you know, first judgment was upon water. Next one's going to be by fire. The Lord... The Creator who spoke into existence everything, with the exception of man, he had it his own personal touch, he you know, got dust from the ground, created it, formed man, that he held back the water. He held it back, and then at that moment, at that moment when it was convenient, he just let it go. He let it go in the midst of the sea. And all these Egyptians basically drowned under three inches of water. Verse 28 says, The waters returned and covered the chariots and the horsemen, even Pharaoh's entire army that had gone into the sea after them. Not even one of them remained. But the sons of Israel walked on dry land through the midst of the sea, and the waters were like a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. 
you can almost consider that through God's divine appointment for His people, He created a roadway for His purposes, for His people. God kept His promise. He says, look, He made a promise to Abraham that I will bring your descendants back to the land that I have for you. No matter where you step, Abraham, this is going to be your land and for your descendants. And God is bringing His people back. And God honors His word. He keeps His promises. He had a divine appointment. He made this roadway. But then you get these other guys who don't belong on this roadway. It doesn't belong for them. It's not for them. So He wipes these people out. Verse 30 says, Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians dead on the seashore. They stood from a distance and they saw that entire army get wiped out. When Israel saw the great power which the Lord had used against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and they believed in the Lord and His servant Moses. Unfortunately, it took for this to occur even even after they had seen from a distance also how God was judging the gods of Egypt. And how are we like any different? We've seen God act in our lives. I've shared with you last week and how we were were renting a house and all of a sudden we got an eviction notice and we had within a month to get out of there, but Rebecca and I had already in our hearts to, to look around for our own property. And the Lord brought us out here and within a 20 day escrow. That was not us. Yes, Thank you, Jesus is exactly right. Now, the crossing of the Red Sea, we only have a few minutes here, is that it could be a type of the believer's union with Christ and death to the old life and resurrection to the new life. Israel was baptized into Moses. They were identified with Moses in going through the waters, and we are identified with Christ and therefore separated from the world, which was Egypt. Even though they had Passover they weren't clear of Egypt yet. They needed to leave it behind in one way or another. And the Lord had to provide that way. The Egyptians could not pass through the sea because they had never been sheltered by the blood. Recall we had Passover. Any surviving people there that were not the firstborn, of course, were still in the army or whatever, they were not sheltered. They didn't have on their doorposts the spilled blood of the lamb, of the sacrificed lamb. Versus the Israelites did. Passover illustrates Christ's death for us. While the crossing of the Red Sea pictures His resurrection. The blood has delivered us from the penalty of sin and the resurrection from the power of sin. The first experience is substitution for the Lamb died in the place of the firstborn. The second experience is identification, for, for we are all identified with Christ in His death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus tells His disciples at the end of Mark, Go out, preach the gospel, and baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Baptism is not an essential for you to be saved, but let's just say it's an added plus. Because we recall the thief on the cross, the condemned man there, He was never baptized. However, he was assured by our Lord that he would be there with him in in paradise that very day. But what does 
Baptism symbolizes, it identifies us with Christ. It links us with Christ. As we go into a watery grave, we are already dead, but when we come out of that, you know, Lord willing, like if Michael doesn't have a kind of twitch and hold people down, well, we do come back alive. Symbolizes the watery grave, and we come back alive, a new person. And it's amazing. You know, we, my wife and I, we both got baptized down at um, Crystal Cove, I believe, Crystal Cove down there, with Pastor Chuck Smith. And it was, to me, it was just an awesome witness. However, it was in the October, which was a little too chilly, but we got to be one of the last ones to be baptized. But for us, it was a testament for whoever was watching that was not a Christian there, that this is who we are, this is what we believe in. I am putting on Christ. This is who I believe. This is who I will follow. This is my Lord, my Master, my Savior, my God, my Redeemer, my Hero. And for all those who were watching from the cliffs, just, or even from their dinghies or their boats, just watching us being baptized, and they were watching with amazement, and others would come along and ask questions, people would fill them in, and I want to be baptized too. It was t- truly an awesome event. We can say that the deliverance of Passover and the miracle of the Red Sea go together. If not for the victory won at the Red Sea, the redemption at Passover would have meant nothing. But they never would have made it to the Red Sea without the miracle of God's redemption at Passover. In the same way, the redemption of the cross would mean nothing without the miracle of resurrection. The two works of deliverance must go hand in hand. So we can look back at the cross. We can see all that the Lord has done for us. And because we can do that, we can look to the future of what He is going to do for us. We sing the song often, I can only imagine. And that's because of the work of the cross. One day, we will behold our Savior. Behold the scars that were taken in our place. In the next chapter, we will see what's labeled as the song of Moses and of Israel. And these people wasn't because until after they had seen for their own eyes what God has done for them. Finally, their oppressor was destroyed. How can a slave really truly be free unless they know that their oppressor is still alive or finally dead? They finally saw their oppressors dead. Then they had a song of praise. We all have on our own lives our own song of praise, of redemption. In Revelation chapter 15, along the glassy sea, there's multitudes that have come out of the tribulation and, and other believers, and they sang the song of Moses, a song of redemption. We've all got a song to sing. I'm envious of our brother Jason, who can put down from his heart lyrics and music, but they're so appropriate, they're awesome. We can do the same thing. However, it's more personalized than that. Isn't that awesome to know? We all have a Red Sea situation in our life. How are we going to handle it? First thing we should do is look up. Do we only look up in times of trouble? Do we look up at times of praise? It's easy to worship God when everyone's in good health and the cupboards are full. Can we still enter into worship 
when it's contrary. As I mentioned before, we have saints in this fellowship and throughout the world that don't complain. Whatever situation Michael shared with us this past Sunday about his brother um, uh, out there where he went. You guys recall where he went? He said he went. No, no, no. Uh, When he went out to Nepal. When he went to Nepal, he says, this man has a never-ending smile, looked like like the Cheshire cat. He says, why are you smiling? You've been kicked out of your country. You have nothing. He says, I have the Lord. That's all I need. And as we as spoiled Americans, is that going to be good enough for us? I went in 1998 to Romania on a missionary trip, and I thought I could encourage our siblings over there. It was the other way around. They have a lot less, yet I came back aglow and encouraged. We're not alone, folks. We have brothers and sisters throughout this world, throughout time especially those who have gone through worse than us. We should always count our blessings. We've just been through a season of Thanksgiving every day that we wake up. I might grumble at my job because I'm bored, but I'm appreciative. (laughs) I'm appreciative. Father, we want to thank you so much, Lord, for all the great, wonderful works that you have showed each individual person here, Lord, in our lives. We all have a story to tell. And I thank you, Lord, for allowing Stephen to come out and give his story. Just a small sampling, Lord. And Father, the things that have been made known to us, we can just sit back in awe and marvel at how much you truly love us. But when we have all doubts, Lord, we should just look at the cross and honestly and truly reflect upon how much you truly love us. You took upon Yourself, Father, our sins, our punishment. You paid our debt, Lord. And we can only say thank You. But that's not enough. We need to give all of ourselves to You, Father. As the offering plate would come around, may it be big enough for us to step in and just offer ourselves. And Father, we're also appreciative of the things that we have not seen, of the works that you have done, Lord, that we have not seen, that go on behind the scenes, Lord, in the spiritual realm. Help us, Father, to build upon our strength, Lord, that you are our strength, Father, our Redeemer. With each passing day, Lord, may we count our blessings that we do see. And thank you, Lord, for the ones that we have not seen. Father, we ask that you be glorified and magnified in our lives. In Jesus' name, for your glory. Amen.